0: to video store my name is sam mulberry today we are talking about the 2010 coen brothers film true grit so let's step into barrett fisher's video store barrett how you doing great sam good morning barrett we are back to uh talk again about true grit this is uh what um if i'm doing my math this is 41 years later is that right from 69 to 2010 i think i did my math yeah i'll I'll trust your math. (laughs) all right um So uh, what is your history with this film? I presume this is a film I saw in the theaters probably opening weekend. Is this a, is this a film I assume you saw in the theaters as well?
1: Yeah, that'd probably be pretty accurate for me. I'm not sure how close to opening week I was, but I definitely was in the theater for it. So I'm a Coen brothers completist. So anytime a Coen brothers film comes out, I'm there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I, they're kind of appointment viewing. So we, uh, we, we seek them out. Um, last week, we, talked about uh westerns a little bit and we talked about kind of positioning the 1969 true grit in terms of like the career of john wayne and what and a little bit about westerns leading up to that what happens in the 41 years in in westerns what happens in the 41 years between 1969, and 2010 that might sort of speak into this movie. I did a little bit of looking um, uh, into uh, into this. Uh, Wikipedia actually has a great catalog of Westerns by decade, by year. Um, so there were some interesting things to, to think about there, but, but do you have thoughts about like how the Western changes from the end of the 60s to 2010?
1: Well, yeah, i, I got a couple of ideas, Sam. I'd be interested in your catalog as well. I, I think that the Western becomes a little bit more complicated in terms of some of the social issues that it engages. Uh, I think it becomes darker. Uh, so, you know, we mentioned last week, Unforgiven as, uh, as a Western along those lines. I would also think of something like Brokeback Mountain, uh, which is a Western that obviously engages contemporary uh, social is- issues. So I think the Western becomes, a, I think it goes in two directions. I think it becomes a little more socially engaged, a little more problematic maybe um, and then I think there's also, there's a few kind of remakes, like uh, Ride the High Country uh, gets remade, um, 310 to Yuma gets remade. Um, but even in the remakes, it uh, the, the, oh, the the three deaths of, uh, I can't remember the character's name, um, that's another kind of uh, social issues uh, Western. Um, so I think those to me are the two directions you kind of get. And maybe we could say that True Grit combines the the two, both of them, in that it's a remake, but it's actually, I think, a little bit grittier, if you will, about some of the issues that are raised by the, the Wild West.
0: Yeah. As I was looking at it, the thing that was interesting uh, in the Wikipedia catalog is it would break it down. So they had a page for each decade. Well, in the 50s, they broke it down into even like half decades, because there's so many. And then they would break it down by year. But what I found interesting is, on in the little chart they had for each year, they would list each film by kind of like Western subgenre. Yeah. And when you're looking at the 60s, for example, uh, a lot of it is just traditional Western or Mm -hmm. you're getting spaghetti Westerns at this point, which are Italian-made Westerns. Um, At the very end, you start to get a few kind of revisionist Westerns. There's a couple like comedy Westerns in there. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you move to the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, the, the idea of traditional Western is becomes more and more rare, where in the 60s, that was the most common B-Westerns mm-hmm. and traditional Westerns. And you get into the 70s, uh, 80s, 90s, 2000s, you start to see a change there. You see a lot of, you start to see the phrase revisionist Western, so maybe we should can talk about what that means a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you start to see more um, uh, Euro Westerns, spaghetti Westerns, comedy Westerns, um, Outlaw westerns, revenge, West, like 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 they, they, they. I feel like the subgenres kind of take over. And my my overall senses. Um, and I think you mentioned this last week. You start to get westerns that are more aware. It's like self aware of being a western and thinking about what it means to be a western. Um, to me, the the. Example where I first realized this was in watching a movie like Unforgiven mm-hmm. um, and I didn't have a long history with Clint Eastwood. I mm-hmm. sort of knew his iconography but not his films, but even watching that, it was clear this is somebody reckoning with uh their own uh filmography, but also reckoning with the genre to w- one of the genres to which they're really um, really deeply attached you know and that that a movie like that reads very different than like. I guess the first westerns that I watched were probably kind of the uh the kind of Brat Pack westerns like Young mm-hmm. Guns Young Guns 2 I think I watched those kind of as they came out um uh Tombstone was an important western oh, for yeah. me in the in the mid 90s um and then you get uh you get things that are kind of um the other thing you see in the catalog are things that are tangentially western so you see things like listed as well this is a space western or this yeah. is a contemporary western or um i mean in 2007 so just you know three or four years before this you get a movie like um uh there will be blood which is kind yeah. of a western yeah. of sorts yeah. um and you get the Comb brothers making no country for old men which mm-hmm. is a contemporary western a cormac mccarthy novel but then they move to do, you know, this is the next film for the Cones is True Grit, um, which is a far more traditional Western in some ways. I mean, I think it's even listed as, uh, it might even be listed as that in the uh, on the Wikipedia. I um, Granted, that's, you know, no definitive thing, but um, why do you think the Cones were drawn to True Grit?
1: That's a really interesting question, because in, in some ways, um... A couple of commentators noted this. In some ways, it's a really atypical Cone Brothers film. Um, and, and part of that is because it, it's not, it doesn't seem to be an ironic film. You know, the Cone Brothers almost always do things with a wink. Um, and I, actually, I think No Country for Old Men is pretty straight as well. Um, but but this doesn't seem to be an, an, an issue, a, a, an effort to kind of send up the Western or, or even to be self-aware. I feel as though it's almost a naive Western in that sense, and that it really takes being a Western seriously. Um, I imagine they were drawn to it, though, because it has a built-in quirkiness that doesn't require uh, a satirical eye, and that is the dialogue. Um, I I think they loved, they must have loved the literary quality of the dialogue, and they they preserved so much of it, from the, from the Portis novel. So I think there's that, and I also think there's just the characters and probably the challenge of saying, what can we do with this iconic role uh, that John Wayne supposedly made his own? Can we kind of answer that with our with, with our Rooster Cogburn? So I think, I, and, and I think maybe they work so much with Roger Deakins the cinematographer he's so much a part of of what it makes us takes a stamp on the coen brothers film i can imagine them saying wouldn't it be great to have roger shoot a western uh, a really traditional western so i don't know I th- i'm just thinking oh, I, i'm i'm spitballing but i'm thinking all those are possibilities
0: yeah and, and even before we before we started recording i said to you wow we just spent an hour talking about this last uh, talking about the story of true grit last week what more is there to say and your comment was oh i think there's there's a lot we can like dig into. And I sort of feel like the cones probably looked at the Portis novel and said, there's so much more here that this this story deserves a, uh, this or, story is worthy of another telling. Um, and they definitely, um, they're definitely interested in uh, making a different movie. Now, I read some things where they uh, were consciously not, Trying to not look at the uh, the the John Wayne movie, I, I don't believe that they hadn't seen it, but but as they were making this, they looked to Portis and looked to Portis and tried to not look too much to True Grit because they didn't want to think about this as a uh, a remake of the 1969 film, but rather uh, mm. another adaptation adaptation of the Portis novel. Yeah. Um, and what I think is interesting about this, and I, I said this last week, and I think we can really see this now, is. I think if, if if this whole video store project is a a exploration into the art of film and filmmaking a little bit, this is kind of the best way to do it because we get to see two different sets of filmmakers working with the same source material, often the same dialogue, the same scenes, like the bones of the movie are the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So the, so the things that stand out that might not in other ways are all of the other sort of pieces of the art of filmmaking. The acting, the cinematography, the editing, the screenplay, the the way they think about setting, the way they think about you know all of those things. Uh, I feel like they're in a, a starker relief because we're we're not looking just at two films. We're looking at two versions of the same story. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious as you um, think about this, watching this film after watching the 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 1969 film. What were the things that jumped out to you most initially to say like, oh, this is something that it's in deep contrast. I would say, um,
1: I would say that before there's even a scene, the fact that this film opens with an epigraph from uh, Proverbs twenty-eight, one: "The wicked flee when none pursueth." Um, I mean, to me, that was, you know, and we've had a couple of other films that have had scriptural epigraphs or or, or epilogues, and to me, that was an immediate signal that this was a different context. And so I would point out the number of ways in which this film relies on a religious, specifically Christian um, context. So Hattie, you know, the theme for Hattie uh, appears several times in the film and it's the, the the hymn leaning on the everlasting arms. Uh, You hear that as she gets off the train, you hear it when she takes Blackie, you hear it when Labeef leaves, uh, you hear it when they're riding for the doctor. Uh, and then at the end there's a gorgeous vocal version by Eris Dement. So and there's no other and there's other hymns as well. Uh, what a Friend We Have and Jesus is in there, and there's a few others. Um, you have her saying towards the beginning, no doubt Cheney fancies himself scot-free, but he must he was wrong, you must pay for everything in this life. One way or another, there's nothing free except for the grace of God. Um, and even in a scene that the Cone Brothers added, the sleeping at the Undertaker's. Where she says, "I felt like Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones." Um, she says, uh, "My father would want me to be firm in the right, as he always was." Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the author of all things watches over me, and I have a good horse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think you know. So that was the that was probably the first thing that kind of popped out at me, uh, Sam.
0: Yeah, and, yeah, and I I, I really uh, I really love that. I mean, I, a couple of things that I that I read talked about how like this is um a story about a bunch of people about about a whole society of people who grew up learning to read and write in a family that only had a king james bible so Mm -hmm. it's like it's like that's and you know and and they were talking about how this is how you get the like letters home from the civil war it's like well if that's the only if that is your the the text to which you learned reading and writing the english language that that like it it heightens because i love even like even someone like Tom Cheney when he talks it it has this air of of like almost scriptural air to it and it's it's you know one of the, the other things which is not true in this movie but i heard it, i read in so many reviews is that this movie does not contain any contractions which is weird. not true there's tons of contractions in it <laughs> but at crucial moments mm. characters omit them yeah. so so you know they're uh and, and and those moments stand out, like when the the hanged man's body falls and Rooster flips him over and he says, I do not know this man. Yes. Like like it's it's it stands out weird, but like but I think that's there are all these powerful moments when they drop the contractions and yeah. they speak in very like uh, in, in a very different kind of way. And I think that highlights or or heightens moments um in those things. Um I, th- I think a th- another thing that that jumped out to me and this is just a kind of a little filmmaking thing is is even like the uh the color grading of this movie like like this uh I mean Deacons is a great cinematographer um but but just the like this has a this doesn't look I talked last week about how you know the 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 uh visual elements of of the 1969 True Grit kind of look um generically like a 60s 70s western or even like Mm -hmm. little house on the prairie like this this has uh, a specific color palette now they also have a lot more tools to make a film look in a particular way but um but i think the browns and the darks and and then and even that the light is not this uh is is rarely this warm (laughs) warm sunlight but even that is is um painted with this kind of uh Cooler, even even the light seems cool in this movie. Um, I think that 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 is the the other thing that jumped out to me right away, and the narration. So when you think about how this movie starts compared to how the '69 movie starts, the '69 movie we see Frank Ross alive, mm-hmm. and we see him riding off with like, and we see him being shot. This movie, the first visual of this movie is the dead body of mm-hmm. um, of Frank Ross, which is important because i so i watched this movie twice this week the second time i watched it i watched this movie looking for corpses this movie (laughs) is full of dead bodies yeah Um, and i found that really really interesting um as i was going through it and and not that the not that the john wayne movie doesn't have that because there are basically the same deaths in in the movie more or less um but it was it's interesting Uh, so i want to come back to that because i think um that sort of affected, uh, affected my, my viewing of this. Now, what's interesting is the Coens, when they talked about this movie, and when people wrote about this movie, they said, you know, that what, they're, what they wanted to do is be truer to the Portis novel. Now, I, I reread the Portis novel this week again because I wanted to be like, I wanted to make sure I was really aware of what was in the novel. What's interesting is that on a, like, story basis... The 1969 movie is much truer to the Portis novel. The Coens oh. actually change more of the novel, but because they add scenes, they add characters, plot points, dialogue, things like this. But they are much truer to the novel in terms of its point of view and in terms of its tone mm. and in terms of its framing device they get from the novel. So it's very interesting that that there's there are things in here which are completely Coen Brothers. There's nothing to do with tra- with Charles Portis mm. in um and, and I think some of those are deeply interesting and arguably some of the more Cohen-esque scenes. So like everything with the hanged man they find in the woods, yeah. um, the, uh, the, the bear man who rides it, like that's all yeah. purely Cohen's, but there's other plot things that, that are, are Coen brother inventions as well. For example, in both the movie, the 69 movie and the book, Labeef and, uh, and rooster and Maddie they never split up. Mm -hmm, They're mm -hmm. always together, but in, they split up twice in this story, Mm -hmm. which I find real, which, which is also really interesting. So, so some of those, uh, some of those things play out, uh, play out differently. Um, I, I also wrote down the, the, the same quote that you said about how um, uh, you must pay for everything one way or another. There's nothing free except the grace of God, because I feel like that is the um, thesis statement or mission statement for this movie, Um, because, uh, and I want to, want to credit, uh, Adam, Adam Naiman, who wrote a great book on the Coens called, uh, this book really ties the movies together. I think is what his, his, uh, his book is called. And I I reread his chapter on this movie and he talks a lot. This is why I started looking for corpses in my second viewing. (laughs) He talks a lot about how this, this, um, book or this this movie is this sort of journey into, um, into the land of death, right? So Mm -hmm. we have, we have Maddie, we have the 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 dead body of frank ross is the opening shot we have maddie sleeping with the corpses we have the um the three hanged men who are among those corpses uh we have her when she crosses the river it makes it because i was looking at this way it makes it feel more like crossing the river sticks like and even even the the ferryman won't take her across so she needs to now granted that's in both both movies but because i was viewing it in a different way i thought more about like this is crossing and then and then once they cross over then they're really in a land filled with uh filled with death so you get um obviously quincy and moon and the other men who are killed at the shootout there's a scene where all their bodies are lined mm-hmm. up outside mm-hmm. frozen um you get uh the hanged man uh and and all and, and like the hangman man is almost like currency getting his getting traded back and forth um, <laughs> uh you get maddie in a tomb at the end of this movie mm-hmm. right like like so mm-hmm. so th- and this is what Adam Naimer was talking about is like she actually is you know underground at a at a certain moment trapped so it's almost like you know if this is a journey into the the land of death she is even even in a tomb and and rescued from that in there there is another dead body and then as they ride off they ride past the Ned Pepper gang and you mm-hmm. s- and there are shots of every one of their bodies as you go through um and then finally the corpse of little blackie right so you get all so there is this sense of death and the thing that i loved about this version of the story um which is not true of the 1969 novel is that this is a story about how seeking revenge or going on this journey crossing over into the the land of the dead or the valley of the shadow of death or whatever we want to call it like that it affects you, that mm-hmm. all three of our main characters live, but all of them are wounded by this mm-hmm. in in different kinds of ways. And they carry that with, it reminds me if we're speaking in biblical terms of my favorite story in the Bible, which is Jacob wrestling with the angel yeah, uh, in yeah, Genesis, yeah. and that he walks away from that with the promise, but also with a limp, right? Yeah. That you're, we're, we're affected by these deep experiences. Um, and, and I loved that. I love how strong that theme felt in this version, which I don't think the 1969 movie, I feel like the Kim Darby, Maddie, like, uh, we don't, we, we don't get told what the rest of her life looks like, but she seems less affected. It's, I mean, even the, it's a broken arm versus losing an arm, even little things like that. Yeah. No,
1: that's a really good point, Sam. I mean, there there is a real, I, I love the connection to the Jacob story because there is a real connection between, um, uh, well, in, in Maddie's case, between achieving the revenge, but the fact that you pay a price for achieving that revenge, or in Jacob's case, you pay a price for wrestling with with the divine, and so I think the fact that she loses the arm is, um, I mean, it, 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 the, the Cone brothers have a really strong sense of that sort of biblical uh, justice, um, or, and this is not the only film, of course, in which they use that. Right? That's that's kind of the framework for *A Serious Man*. Um, some kind of notion of some kind of strange retribution that you're not exactly sure where where it came from. I want to point out there's there's a, a nice framing device involving corpses, uh, but you but you never see them. And that is the um, the, the the coffins, the, the coffin of her father. And actually, now that I think about it, I'm not sure that the Cone brothers show this, but it's more in the sixty nine film where the father's coffin is labeled, right? It's in, uh,
0: but it's it's in this movie as well.
1: It is okay because I noted, that, of course, what I'm is it, it comes full circle, right? Because at the end you have, uh, you have Cogburn, uh, Yell Yel, Yel County pick up at station, which is a really interesting way of, um, suggesting that Rooster has become the surrogate father, uh, to her. Um, and I just found that really a very effective framing device. The other, the other thing I want to say, there's so many ways in which the Coen brothers have, um, have kind of transform the narrative. But the other thing I would point out what you were saying early on is the way the film opens because you said last week that it's interesting that this film is actually shorter than the 69 version. And I don't know which one is truer to the pacing of the novel. But one of the things that struck me with this film having watched the 69 one is the the incredible economy of the of of how all those plot points are handled at the beginning so they kind of achieved two things first of all they have adopted the narrative structure of the novel as a flashback but then they've been very economical in how they have kind of covered that ground and then they um uh, they omit all the they, they omit the dinner scene the whole kind of domestic setting for rooster with the with his chinese landlord and the cat and and the haggling with lebeef they just Take all that stuff out, and then they do to me what is a very Coen Brothers thing, which is: where do you first meet Rooster Cogburn? He's on the toilet. Uh, The Jakes is occupied. The Jakes is occupied. I mean, I just, I, you know, this tells you from the very beginning that this is not going to be the John Wayne Rooster Cogburn. In addition to the fact, of course, that he wears the eye patch on the on on the other side uh, of of his face.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I had that, I had that down as something that I wanted to talk about that you know how do you you know and how do you create a character in the shadow of john wayne regardless of how you feel about john wayne it's a looming shadow as you think about this story so what you do is you undercut that so the first time you meet rooster you don't even see him and you instead of it being you're seeing rooster kind of holding court in the courtroom right on the stand. Instead, he's, he's on a very, very different seat. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it, it reminds me of, um, uh, again, this is a stretch, but it reminds me of the, the first time we meet the first chapter, we meet Leopold Bloom in Ulysses. One of the (laughs) things he does is goes to the outhouse. Right. And it, it sort of shows you like, okay, this is a character you've maybe not met before. Right. This is, this is, uh, this is something new. Um, uh so i want to talk a little bit about um about the the different characters in this and i want to try my best to not just be like you know jeff bridges versus john wayne when we get to this although that one i do kind of want to talk about because that is such a looming character to sort of think about the comparisons but but i mean one of the things that jumps out to me as i'm looking at these movies is um how much uh better a lot of the performances are, um, I think, um, in mm. in this movie. I think the uh, one character in particular might be one of the best roles I've ever seen this actor in, and it, it kind of blew me away because I had I'd forgotten he was in the movie, and instead I was like, oh my gosh, this is. A... But well, let me let's start with 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 Rooster. So you know, if we think about what Bridges is doing with this character, um, and what the cones are doing with it, because they do give Rooster a lot more. Um, there's a lot more dialogue, especially in the when they're on the trail, and he's telling stories. He tells a lot more than he tells in the film and I and, and in the book. So they 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 fill out his backstory in in some pretty interesting ways. I think.
1: Well, I, I you know I think one, one of the things I noticed about about his character is much more than in the '69 film. They really do play up the drunkenness uh, and that. That that becomes, I mean, a real element of his character. It kind of it kind of gets dropped out in '69, right? He, he pretty much sobers up once they're on the trail, but it's a real it's a real issue here, especially with the shooting scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then I love the scene when uh, he just tosses the empty bottle into the river. You know, just a little this little 10 second shot. So I, I I think one of the first things they wanted to do was they wanted to demythologize Rooster. Um I think that you know part of I think the reason why we think of the 69 True Grit as basically Rooster Cogburn is because he's really the dominant figure in that film and I think that in this in this instance uh, the Rooster is important but I don't feel like he dominates the film the way that Rooster does in the, in the 69 he's a much more he's a much more problematic character uh in terms of uh of his behavior and and you know of course his You know, he shows his true colors at the end when he, when he rescues Maddie, but still, I think he's not, um, he's not a mythical hero in quite the same way that he is in 69.
0: Well, I look at even some of the stories that he tells. So one of the things that, and this probably talks about maybe even the difference between 1969 and 2010, as we reckon with America's past in different ways, like they, they really lean into the Quantrill stuff a little bit more. Yes. So, so there there's more of that. So we have that piece of uh, a, a definitely problematic past for Rooster, but even as he's telling his stories, you know, if you, if you listen to what he's saying, I mean, he, he confesses to being a bank robber, which is yeah. funny as a U.S. marshal who's like, "Yeah, we got to go get these people who robbed this train or who did this," and it's like he's 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 a bank robber, and it, I love that he. Um, it's a high interest bank. So he says like, I, you know, I, I basically I was, I was robbing from the people who were robbing and Maddie says, it's still stealing. And he says, uh, that's the position they took in New Mexico too, <laughs> which is, which is a great Cohen's line,
1: which is interesting. Cause of course the Cone brought neither the Cohen brothers nor Jeff Bridges knew that uh, several years later, he was going to be in hell or high water, uh, which really does which really does justify bank robbing because of the usurious practices of the bankers. So,
0: yes, so, so it's, so I, I, I feel like, like. They They do that with rooster as well they also um they also just make him like arbitrarily irascible at times like there is this the scene which is in the book when they visit the store and he kicks the little kids yeah yeah. that's in the book too and it and it just sort of like is it you know in the book it's a little clearer that they're like taunting that donkey Mm. so so like maybe he's teaching them a lesson or something in the book it, or in the movie, it seems less, yeah. it seems more like he's just, you're there. So I'm going to do this. So they, they do a lot to, to undercut him. Now, the other thing they do with rooster, that's really interesting, which doesn't happen in the book is that rooster gives up. Mm. That's not, that's not in yeah. the, that's not in the book. That's not in the 1969 movie. Just mm-hmm. that, that whole sequence of the trail is cold Yeah. Um is, is, really jumped out to me because the because that that doesn't happen there. So I'm thinking about what you said about the length of the movie we we're talking about that because they're so economical I actually think they spend more time out on the trail mm-hmm. than than the 69 movie does. Um and in that way it it has this it has the opportunity to feel again I'm overstating but it feels more like this homeric journey or this like journey into this other world i think the the bear man is is a great example of this where once that happens actually once they find the hangman that whole sequence points to like kind of anything can happen out here and i love the way that they even shoot the bear man doctor because it is a long time before you see his face and it genuinely just looks like a bear riding on a horse and i remember the first time i saw it thinking no like like (laughs) what are they doing this is this is silly and then i and then then when you realize who that person is like so so i feel like like because they give themselves so much time on that journey they can do the various things of people coming in and out kind of encountering people uh in different ways now one of the things i love about the the um the dead body that that's hung and then it's unclear whether Rooster sells it or just gives it to the the, mm-hmm. the native who's passing by. But then that the body comes back to them, <laughs> and the guy offers to sell it to them. I love that mirroring with the horse trading at the beginning, where she mm. has these horses that she sells, and then she wants to try to buy one back. It feels like now we're doing that with this dead body that apparently has some kind of value there. I, I love that little mirroring. Yeah,
1: yeah, that that and and that yeah that that is one of the more distinctive kind of uh Cohn Brothers touches in the film. I mean that that was the image I if you had asked had said to me before I went to this film, what's the one image you remember from this film? It would have been it, it would have been two things. It would have been the bear man and it would have been um Maddie's amputated uh, the, the shot of the uh, Maddie from the back with your with your mm-hmm. amputated arm.
0: Yep. Um so let's talk about Haley Seinfeld or Steinfeld. Um uh she is definitely um the right age she's actually i think when they started filming a year younger than maddie i think she's yeah. 13 when they start filming um and kind of unbelievable that they found uh that they found this person who seems to perfectly fit the character um and 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 is able to uh, is able to deliver that dialogue in a way that feels believable cuz it it shouldn't i mean it should feel strange but and where it does feel strange in, in front at times from some of the characters in the 69 film it doesn't feel that way in this movie i feel i feel like i i buy maddie in a in a, a deep kind of way yeah
1: they i think i think they audition something like 15,000 uh, uh young actresses you know I, th- I think part of it is that um i don't i i get it, it seems like you know you're thir- you're 14 years old you're kind of learning the ways of the world and if you've been taught, this is the way to talk. So somehow, somehow that makes it, it makes it almost more realistic that she should talk this way because this is the way she's been told to talk. Uh, and it and it seems to and it seems it seems to work. I mean, she's she's obviously precocious on the one hand, but on the other hand, she she's learned a She's learned. She's very much her father's daughter, and she talks about you know the fact that her father always taught her to do the right thing. And so I think the way she speaks kind of reflects that sense of this is the the grammatical way to speak is sort of part of her moral fiber, if you will.
0: Mm-hmm. And then and when she corrects people's Latin or or like gets into the discussion of like you know, minutiae of Latin or, or legal Latin, those types of things. Um, I, my favorite, oh. my, f- oh. or, I
1: would say, or 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 at the end when she talks about getting roosters note and she says, brief though, his note was, it was rife with misspellings.
0: Right. It's, I, it's, I just love that. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I, I love this. The first scene where she actually talks with Rooster face to face, they do a great blocking thing, which tells you something about the character where Rooster is continually trying to walk away from her mm-hmm. and she can she constantly stands in his way mm-hmm. so i mean and so you know she is this undeniable character i think we talked about this last week but there they, they do it physically as well that he's constantly taking half a step forward mm-hmm. and she's in his waist you know keeps pushing him um, um in that direction uh and then she also has i also love that she has this um th- this we talked last time about this, this sort of view of the law and justice, but there's also this naivete to it as well. And, and I feel like that comes across really well in here where rooster is trying to explain like, okay, out here, some of those things aren't going to happen and you know, she has that line pretty late in you know, midway through the movie where, you know, when I pay for something, I will have it my way. Mm-hmm. And it's like, at one level, you respect that at another level. You're like, you want to say to the screen, Maddie, that's just not how this works. Like you're, you want to be on her side. But when she says that I, find myself with rooster frustrated by just like it that's just not what it is and you know and and that's that makes that you know the trail is cold scene Mm. more powerful because there is this sense that they all have kind of understood each other and even when um when labeef rides away you know he says it's not i'm not It's not that i'm not taking you with me because i don't think you can handle it he's he's like you have proved yourself to be a you know a capable trail hand but i need to do this i need to go and and you know and there is and just the uh the the little formality of like i extend my hands to you you know uh, like i i I love that moment of of getting this sense that even though they have broken up multiple times as a group Mm -hmm. that there is this this mutual respect which goes back to that line at the end when Cole Younger is talking about mm. Bruce Stern says we had some lively times. Yes. I think Cole means one thing, and when Maddie says you could no. say we had some lively times, like it means something different, and it it really speaks to those kind of in- intense experiences you have with people. Sometimes there are people you only know for a short time, but if it is, uh, I think about study abroad creates some of these kind of intense relationships with people because you're living together for this, this short period of time where it's like, even if I never see that person again, when I think of them, I think more deeply about that person. And this, this has a little bit of that, that feel as well.
1: I want, I want to go back to what you're saying about Maddie and, and the law as well, um, Sam, because one of the big differences I think in this film is that uh lawyer daggett doesn't get mentioned very often and lawyer daggett doesn't show up. Uh, And and Lawyer Daggett, as we talked about last week, he's kind of a great punchline uh, in the 69 film, but here it's just Maddie and her sense of the law, which has a a kind of biblical uh, element behind it. But there was a saying at the time, as you may know, which is there's no law west of St. Louis and no God west of Fort Smith. So she doesn't really recognize that she is in in an area which is both lawless and godless. Right, that's that's not something that sh- that she's going to acknowledge. And I think that by doing that, the Coen Brothers have made her an even stronger uh, character uh, than she is in the in the '69 film because she's much more self reliant, um, and is, is she also has a little bit of the power of money. You know, when I pay for something, I'm going to get what I pay for.
0: Mm-hmm. And the one time lawyer Daggett does show up, it's it's in a letter where he is like both scolding her but saying like. Well, you did a good job too. Uh and voiced by J.K. Simmons, which I didn't catch the first time around. Yeah, that that's the right. voice. Yeah. yeah. The other thing the other thing they do for Maddie in this, and this is this is a change from the book, but is a deeply meaningful change, is in the Cohen Brothers film, Maddie gets to kill Cheney yes that's right Mm -hmm. in the book it's rooster in the book maddie shoots him twice but cheney is still there while she's down in the cave Mm. taunting her and rooster comes up from behind and kills him um so so this you know if we're thinking about this as this journey into death you know maddie actually pulls the trigger that kills tom cheney in this story which you know like that affects you again you know you think about people talking about going to war and like you have this This sense of like, I, I cannot undo the things that I have done. Like, this is the thing she wants and she gets what she wants, but it also deeply affects her in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, so my favorite character in this movie, and I think the character who pops out so much more than, uh, than Glenn Campbell is, I think Matt Damon is spectacular in this movie. Uh, and I had forgotten that he plays Labeef and, uh, everything from his the introduction of him the first time where he's just sitting on the porch smoking and then the vanity that he has like when when he first introduces himself and she says are you some kind of law and he leans back and just pulls back his lapel and says i'm a texas ranger and, and then she undercuts that right away she's like well that might mean something in texas but you know here and 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 then just the the kind of sparring uh back and forth uh back and forth between Maddie and Lebeef, between Rooster and Labeef, uh, I think he's great. And um and he gets to be shown as somebody who who has this kind of vanity in being a ranger, but also like um has all these insecurities about it as well. I think that the, the fight they have at the campfire over again, and again, this is in the book and in the other movie, but about like drinking water out of horse tracks and, oh, yeah. you know, and, and these types of things like, like it is, there is this like honor that he wants to uphold and, and roosters just over that kind of stuff as a marshal Cause we, we learn more about roosters life and you're like, yeah, being a marshal is just one little piece of what rooster has been. And you feel you get this sense that, that Lebeef's identity is tied into, being a ranger more and then we have the great uh, the great thing where when labeef gets shot and his his bites his almost bites his tongue off and that that becomes something through the rest of the film even even his last lines he's tongue-tied struggling to uh struggling to speak and the great scene where rooster is potentially going to pull his tongue out and (laughs) it will knit it will i i just think he is spectacular in this movie
1: I love that opening, the, the, the second scene when he's in her bedroom and she says, we have no rodeo clowns in <laughs> Yale County. And he talks <laughs> yes. about either way, you know, spanking her or kissing her. And she says, you know, e- either alternative would be equally unpleasant. Yes. Um, I, you know, but I think, I think one of the things that the film does because of the, because of the way they split them up is that she develops as much of a relationship with Labeef as she does with Rooster, right? Mm-hmm. So when they part the, um, uh, the second time, you know, and she says, I seriously misjudged you. Or uh, we've misjudged each other, and you get the, the the everlasting arms theme playing. I mean, I I think that that's really interesting that she's really kind of given this close connection to uh, to both of them.
0: Mm-hmm. And we also get the the uh, we get a literal Chekhov's gun in this. We get the Sharps carbine, which um, when when Labee first rides off, Maddie is concerned a little bit and she says well we don't need him do we and and rooster says we could use his sharps carbine <laughs> yeah. and then that's that's the gun that both saves rooster and the gun that kills tom chaney mm-hmm. um and there's a great coen brothers moment when he shoots uh ned pepper and she's like you know that's a bully shot and he starts he's about to give a speech about the sharps carbine and then uh <laughs> chaney comes by and hits him with a rock you know in the head and it's just like like that's like it's a oddly fu- a very violent but very funny moment uh, again of the vanity of like yes these are the tools that we have and you can you know so i i just think that he's so great he's 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 fantastic some smaller roles in this that i i um i'm curious your thoughts of of um both barry pepper as ned pepper i don't know it's just funny that they yes. have the same last name uh and then josh brolin as tom cheney um we talked last week about how i didn't love Uh, Tom Chaney in the the 69 film. I think Brolin's actually really, really good as this like odd, like sad sack kind of guy where he's just like, everything is against me. And he's just, he's it's, it's, it's really funny, Um, you know, but he's also this character of, of like genuine menace and terror, but he's also, but he's also a comically funny character. And I actually think Barry Pepper as Ned Pepper is great and, and and even the way the dynamic between them that plays out where where uh maddie keep, and this is in the book as well where maddie keeps referring to ned as tom cheney's boss and like you will do what he says or he won't pay you and and even that undercuts uh undercuts cheney and and pepper's uh, ned pepper just seems like a um an off Oddly, almost sympathetic figure at times. Like when he's talking with her, like you know, she's like, "Do you, you know, I have a good lawyer," and he says, "I need a good judge." <laughs> you know, so so I think I think both of those pieces of casting are great. I and
1: I I, I love it when she says to him. Um, uh, speaking of rooster, she says, "He's abandoned me to a congress of louts," and he says to her, "You do not varnish your opinions." Yes. Uh, I, I, another instance where there's not a contraction. Yes. Right? You, you do not varnish your opinions. And I, and I agree. I mean, I think I, I love Josh Brolin in almost any role. And I, I think he does, as you've already suggested, Sam, he kind of captures this tension between Cheney as kind of feckless our hapless and menacing at the same time. So when she says, if you leave me with him, he will kill me. Um, you know, you can almost believe that's actually going to happen. So yeah, Brolin is just, he's just great in that role.
0: The other thing I learned watching this movie is I must be a sucker for the character Moon and them <laughs> hiding really good actors, young, really good actors in there because I was watching this and I, and as I watched, it, I'm like, who is that guy? I know yeah. and it's Domhnall Gleeson um, playing, playing Moon. And I think he's, I thought that, um, I thought that, uh, um who plays Moon in 69? Why am I blanking on his name? Oh, that's um uh, Dennis uh, Hopper. Dennis Hopper. I thought Dennis Hopper was great. I think Domino Gleason is great in that small that small part. And I think it's actually like a pretty pivotal moment in the movie is the uh the moon scene um and I I I really thought uh I really thought he was great in this.
1: Yeah, he's one of those actors that sometimes I miss him. It's kind of like um uh Michael whatever his last name is who's in Serious Man. Um he's, he's one, one of these guys. Yeah, no, no matter what, you know, I've gotten better at recognizing him. My wife never recognizes him. I always say, well, that's so and so. And she'll say, who is that again? And I, and and this time I missed Donald Gleason. Um, it wasn't until the credits rolled that I realized who it was.
0: Um, so then, uh, you know, the other thing that we talked about, uh, is that this then preserves the move or the book's ending. Um, so we get, uh, we get older Maddie and even the transition, the voiceover transition from young Maddie to old Maddie, uh, or from excuse me, not it's not voiceover transition, but from hearing Maddie speak to um to the, the voiceover of old Maddie. Uh and and there's the great Cole Younger sort of versus Frank James, um, where where Cole Younger stands up and speaks with her, and Frank James just sits there and you know, as she walks like she comes all this way has one conversation and then picks up her stuff and leaves. And as she leaves, she says, you can stay seat, you can keep your seat trash, trash. To, to Frank James. <laughs> um and in the book it explains that uh you know Cole Younger went to went to jail for killing the banker in, in Northfield, Minnesota. Yes. Yeah. And he said, and she says, you know, Frank James is probably the one who killed him. And the fact so she's pointing to the fact that these two people, these two old men are sitting there together as if they're old friends and like one of these people went went to prison for the other one you know and um and i think it again that that scene speaks so much to the the end of the uh the end of the frontier the end of the west by the time we get i think that's 1903 by that point mm-hmm. um and you know it, it adds the piece uh, and this is a this is a cohen's edition where she also um reminisces about Beef. You know, and it's like, I, I never, I've never heard from him again. I would love to, I would love to talk with him, yeah. you know, because they also, you know, have had lively times and, and there is this sense, and then it's kind of heartbreaking to realize that she never sees Rooster again. She never sees Labeef again. You know, they have this intense couple of days or however long they're gone. And then, you know, they, they go back and live their lives. And she, in the right. book it explains that she's left to be the one to care for their mother so her two siblings go off and get married and have families and her job is to care for the homestead and her mother um and you know and then we end with the burial and and again the the uh the music especially leaning on the everlasting arms is is great and one of the one reviewer pointed out even the um kind of dark joke about having the song be everlasting arms when you have yeah. somebody who's lost an arm yeah. you know as part of this
1: um, you know, one of the uh, w- w- one of the contrary opinions on the film that I ran across has to do with the ending. You know, most people like most most people gave the film a very high rating, but there were there's a kind of a, a different perspective that I got from a couple of a uh, couple of reviewers that felt that the that the ending um, undermined the the character, um, and and they said, you know they felt that what the cones had done was by avoiding one trope, which the novel also avoids, which is Maddie doesn't get married and have children and all that stuff. It, but it adopts another trope, you know, Maddie as, as a spinster. Uh, and these reviewers felt that it was the wrong, the wrong tone. Hmm. Uh, one person says, I don't care that she's maimed, single and alone. I care that she has no joy, no anima, no personality. The tone is downright wrong. I find the two characters completely distinct: young Maddie versus old Maddie, bearing no relation to the other. So I thought that was really interesting because um, I mean that was a minority opinion, um, but it, but it was an opinion uh, I, I actually posted on the website Bitch Media, uh, and uh, and a number of other kind of viewers weighed in, you know, with that with that agreement that they were they were disappointed that it fast forwarded to this old Maddie as though she was kind of fulfilling this, this notion of the, um, unhappy spinster.
0: That's really interesting. You know, it, now another piece that, this is probably two sentences in the book that explain this, because she talks about actually how people are, tease her and are critical about, of her about not getting married. And, um, you know, she says that, that, uh, one of the other pieces the book explains in these two sentences is that bank, or, uh, that, um, that Maddie is a prominent banker <laughs> um, that that's so, so like, so she has this, she has this, she's her life was not resigned to just like caring for her mother as her mother ages and dies. But she also takes on the family business. And she talks about all those people who are critical of her. They're happy enough to come to her for loans, you know, when, when they need loans for their homesteads and things like this. So um, I think that's interesting, but, but I do think to me, it's true it's not about losing the arm because if she lost, didn't lose the arm, it wouldn't matter. It's the fact that like she has, she's living with the impact of this story. And I yeah, think, yeah. you know, I think Rooster also has a, um, I don't imagine life on, in the traveling uh, Cole Younger, Frank James circus is particularly fun necessarily. No. Right. You know, that, that, that he also like in some ways can't come back from this. And, Maybe LaBeef never comes back from this. I mean, I right. think there is the, this sense that, like, they went on this journey. They did, she did what she thought her duty was, and that became the thing that consumed her. And that's, you know, that's that's the mark that she bears. And, you know, as much as she bears the mark with her losing an arm, there is this other kind of weight on her.
1: I just have to share a couple of descriptions of Maddie from from uh, the critics who are more appreciative. Peter Travers and Rolling Stone said she's Huck Finn as a teen diva. Uh, Manola Dargis in the New York Times said, a half pint with her blood lust and severely braided hair is an authentic American Gothic. At times, she brings to mind D.H. Lawrence's famed formulation that, quote, the essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, Do you have other things you want to talk about? Just a couple
1: quick things. Uh, I just have to share one of my favorite lines. Colonel Stonehill says to her when they're haggling, uh, he says, I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is, is vexing enough. That, that's the wonderful line.
0: Well, Stonehill is great just in general. That's that one of my
1: favorite it. scenes in both of the films. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to point out, a very nice bit of foreshadowing on the part of the Cone brothers is twice when they lie down to sleep on the trail, they put the, uh, the rope around them because of the fear of snakes. Uh, so it's a great foreshadowing that, uh, that the snake is coming. Well,
0: and, and what's interesting uh, about that is the first time they do it, Rooster does it, and um and Maddie is like kind of unaware of that, so she's asking kind of about what he's doing, and then the second time you see them doing that, it's Rooster drunk and Maddie is putting the the putting the ropes around him, so she is also in this this role, and this is at a point where he has given up on her, right? This is this is after the trail is cold and he's <laughs> he's he's out. She still does that to protect him. Yeah. So, yeah. wow. I really like. I truly love this movie. This is uh, this is up there among my uh, my favorite westerns. I would all I will say. Um, I also love No Country for Old Men. Now because these two movies exist it means that there is no way that the cone brothers will ever make the blood meridian which is the which is a movie i would love to see them oh, make yeah, cuz yeah. they've already made a cormac mccarthy movie they've already made uh, a western but like i still i feel like there are scenes in this where i where i sort of get that feeling of like Oh, if they wanted to do that, that would be a very violent, very dark, but very interesting movie because that's a movie full of ideas that are a book full of ideas. So, um, but, but alas, this, I think watching no country in this is the closest I will get to, to a Coen (laughs) brothers blood meridian and I will take it. This is pretty, these are pretty great. So, so what do you have for us for next week?
1: Well, I've been struggling a bit with what to do uh, as Christmas is, is approaching. So I don't, I don't actually have a Christmas movie for next week, but I, I'm going to do a pairing of two movies from 1946. Um, so next week, we're going to do um, the, the classic, um, The Best Years of Our Lives uh, the, from 1946. Uh, uh, warning, it's a long film. It's almost three hours. Um, a big Academy Award winner and cinematographer Greg Toland. Uh, the great cinematographer worked with Wells on Citizen Kane. So lots of great deep focus, lots of great performances. It was William Wyler's first Oscar as director, I believe. There's a couple of other Oscar winning performances. So that's uh, immediately after the war, 46. And so we're gonna do two films in 46. I won't tell you what the second one is, but we're gonna do this one first.
0: Fantastic. I am very excited. I've seen this movie once a long, long time ago, uh, and am very excited to revisit it with uh 2021 eyes. Barrett, thank you so much for uh going on this two-week True Grit journey into the Valley of Death. Um I I am a better person for it. I find these really interesting. I'm gonna keep going back to the, especially the Cohen one and probably the Portis novel. I actually I really find Uh, I really find that compelling. So thank you so much. Um, That is all the time that we have. We will be back next week to talk about the best years of our lives in the video stuff.